Hi listeners, thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Red Mom, Blue Mom. We know you're going to really enjoy it, but we did want to let you know that the subject matter covered in today's conversation is adult in nature. We know some of you may listen with your kids around, and we wanted to make sure you had a heads up so that you could use discretion while listening. Thanks, and let's get started. Hi listeners, it's Caitlin. Thanks for joining us today. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a sex ed curriculum bill that's currently making its way through the legislature here in Colorado. We're also going to talk about how to talk about sex with your kids. Many listeners know that both Shelly and I have boys who started middle school last fall, so we're right in that transitional age where things like discussing puberty and sex ed are absolutely part of our parenting agenda. Listeners, we are also really excited today to have our first ever guest with us on our Red Mom, Blue Mom episode. We are very happy to be joined by Allison Macklin. Allison and I became friends in college, and we had tons of adventures and fun over the years when we were there and in our early 20s. Allison is now married. She has two boys, ages 10 and 7. After graduating with her undergraduate from DU, she went on to get a master's degree in social work, also from the University of Denver, and she has spent the last 14 years working at Planned Parenthood Rocky Mountain, where she currently holds the role of VP of Education and Innovation. I want to mention that Allison is not acting as an official spokesperson for Planned Parenthood today in any way, but certainly her experience and her perspective will be very helpful for our conversation. In addition, it's important for our listeners to know that Allison recently testified in front of both the Colorado House and Senate on behalf of Planned Parenthood in support of the 2019 sex ed bill. Finally, Allison is also an author. She recently wrote a book on how to talk to your kids about sex called Making Sense of It, A Guide to Sex for Teens and Their Parents Too. That book was released in September of 2018, and we'll be talking a little bit more about her book later on in the show. Allison, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start today with discussing the sex ed bill here in Colorado. The official name of the bill is the Comprehensive Human Sexuality Education Bill, although in other parts of the text it's also referenced as the Colorado Youth Wellness Act. As of the date of the recording of this podcast, the bill seems to be on track to be sent to our governor's desk to be signed into law. The bill has caused quite a bit of controversy here in Colorado, with supporters and critics generally split across party lines. The last sex ed bill in Colorado was passed back in 2013, and we'll talk about what's changed between that bill and this 2019 proposal. My understanding is that overall, the purpose of the 2019 bill is to add some additional curriculum requirements to the existing law. There's also a a portion of the 2019 bill that addresses some financial opportunities for schools to help them ensure that they are complying with the new law. A brief summary of the new law would be, first, If you're going to teach sex ed, it must be comprehensive. Second, it must include abstinence and contraception. Third, it must promote healthy relationships free of abuse, including education on consent. So it must teach how to avoid making unwanted advances or make assumptions about a person's desire, how to avoid a sexual encounter without consent, and how drug and alcohol use can affect decision-making and sexual violence. Fourth, Pregnancy options do not need to be taught, but if they are taught, they cannot exclude or favor certain outcomes. Fifth, discussion of religious values is okay, but it can't favor any one religion and can't shame or employ gender norms or exclude LGBT experience. And lastly, there is a detail, there is a parental consent provision, detailed outline of the topics, go home to parents first with an opt-out option. However, the law does not require notification for programming on gender, gender expression, sexual orientation, or healthy relationships that occurs outside the context of human sexuality instruction. Now, clearly, Allison is a supporter of this bill, and I think it's fair to say that Shelley supports it as well. For me personally, I support some, but not all of it. So as we kick off our conversation today, Allison, I'm wondering if you can share with us a summary of the key differences about the 2019 bill compared to the existing legislation from 2013 and why you think those changes are important. Absolutely. So the main differences from the 2013 bill to the 2019 bill, one of them actually is the funding piece. So that's a that's actually a really big one. Because in 2013, there was no fiscal note attached to the bill. So it has remained an unfunded mandate in law in the state of Colorado. And so it was really important to work to secure some funding, especially knowing how rural school districts are suffering and needing some resources to help train teachers, bring in curriculum. And so really, the bill outlines prioritizing 
the most vulnerable and at-risk schools and school districts for um, for accessing that funding. So that is one really big component. The other thing is that our atmosphere and our cl- political climate and just overall being in the United States and in the state of Colorado looks much different than it did in 2013. With the dawn of the Me Too movement, um, we have consent and issues of uh, sexual assault have never been more prevalent and talked about. And it's obvious that we need to do better um, for our young people in teaching them consent and healthy relationship skills. The updated language really helps to solidify that and clarify that. There's also a lot, uh, we know a lot more about uh, sexual identity. We know a lot more about sexual orientation than we did back in 2013, even though it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. And so we need to make sure that we are supporting um, young people regardless of how they identify and regardless of who they're in a relationship with. I think the other piece that's really important is that we we recognize that issues of sexual violence and reporting is has never been higher. We also know that we have a high rate of suicides and mental health issues, especially among our LGBTQ students. Um, and so this bill is really aimed to support some of those most vulnerable students. And uh, Allison, the bill is also sponsored by a Republican in the Senate, right? That's right. Quorum is our Republican senator who's sponsoring the bill. And he recognizes that teenagers are beginning to explore about sex and sexuality, that it's a normal part of human development, and therefore um, recognizes the importance of comprehensive sex education. He also recognizes the fact that we want to make sure that all young people have the skills to navigate relationships and to advocate for themselves. Um, So it's not just about saying no to sex, it's how to receive a no, it's how to, you know, make sure that our schools are setting up safe spaces for all of our students to learn. And the way I understood uh, some of his statements about the bill, he also sort of recognized, and, and I wonder, Caitlin, if you agree with this data, that there is a correlation in the data between higher teen pregnancy rates, higher STDs, where no comprehensive sex ed is taught. That's right. States where there is abstinence only till marriage curriculum, there is absolutely data that shows that unplanned pregnancies are higher, STI rates are higher, and even in the state of Colorado, in Weld County alone, where they practice abstinence only till marriage programming through their county health department, there has been a 400% increase in STIs in the past year. I certainly don't dispute the the connection between those, um, those statistics that you mentioned, and I think just for the record, obviously I'm the conservative Republican in the duo here between Shelley and me, but I agree. I think any sort of sex ed, quote unquote, that's based on an abstinence only type of philosophy, I even without the numbers, that just doesn't seem like that's something that's realistic or effective, uh, certainly in this day and age. So I agree with the need for sex ed in public schools. Um, and I think some of the things, Allison, that you just talked about, some of the changes that have come along with the 2019 bill, you know, recognizing consent and the changing environment that we're in, driving more awareness and understanding around sexual assault or sexual harassment, being more inclusive of some of these uh, different groups around LGBT. I think all of those in concept are really good ideas. So I I support those things, absolutely. Um, But of course, the devil is in the details. And I think, as I mentioned in the beginning, there's been some controversy about this bill because I think some of the way that the language is drafted, at least the way that I read it, I think is causing a bit of concern. Um, Certainly, I think religious groups have come out, at least the Catholics have come out to raise some concerns about this. So I think that's where the details of the bill uh, have driven some controversy and a couple points that for me at least I think are really interesting if we can just maybe jump into the context of the bill. The first thing is this new definition in the 2019 bill around what constitutes instruction, so human sexuality instruction. So the idea of instruction as a defined term or word didn't really exist in the 2013 bill. So my understanding is that's new for 2019, but it's written in a very specific way. And Allison, I would love to hear your feedback because I know you've been very involved with this just to help me understand why it's been written this way. So the way that the language reads in the 2019 proposal is it defines instruction for human sexuality as, quote, any single 
oral, written, or digital lesson, lecture, or presentation that covers two or more topics by school or non-school staff. And there are three options that have to satisfy that two or more topics. The first is biology related to human reproduction or sexual development. The second one is sexual orientation, sexuality, or sexual activity. And the third is the development of safe and healthy relationships. So the language around what defines or constitutes instruction, quote unquote, which then triggers things like parental notification and things like that, is very specific, very precise. And I don't understand the history there. Maybe, Allison, you can speak to us about why it's written that way. Yeah, so, well, obviously, that was really <laughs> intentional part of the of writing, because we do recognize that schools will often have maybe some an organization. So here locally, there's an organization called Blue Bench, and they come in and they teach specifically around sexual assault prevention. And so we wanted to make sure that schools really still had the flexibility to bring in those types of organizations, but not be beholden to the state standards for sex education education, whereas those presentations would have to speak exactly to the standards as they're written. In that type of scenario, though, if a school wanted to bring in that organization to talk about, you know, sexual assault prevention, for example, how does that relate or trigger any sort of parental notification? And I'm not saying as a parent, I would necessarily be alarmed about, you know, that type of presentation, but but how does that relationship work? Each school has their own policy, um, and those policies are set forth by the district with regard to what they need to alert parents about. So I can't speak to a specific school district as to whether or not they would say, you know, we're having this outside speaker come in from Blue Bench, for example. But in this bill, we made it very specific that if two or more subjects are being taught, then they have to notify the parents. So if Blue Bench is coming in to talk about sexual assault, and then it's being followed by a Planned Parenthood presentation on contraception, then absolutely that would be considered instruction, and therefore schools would need to notify parents that that is happening. Let's just say hypothetically, and I don't think this would happen, but in a very extreme, unlikely example, let's say a school decides to bring in uh, someone from outside to basically explain the details on how homosexual sex works between two men. And, And that's the intent of the presentation. Again, the likelihood of that happening is very unlikely. But in that scenario, under the the verbiage in the bill, My understanding is that would not constitute quote-unquote instruction because it is one subject. It's not covering two things. And as a result, there would be no parental notification triggered in that scenario. Except when you're talking about sexual activity, that's biological. And so that is under the definition because it's one single session. Okay, interesting. Because they're obviously separated in the bill that biology related to human reproduction or sexual development, and then separately sexual orientation, sexuality, or sexual activity are kind of identified as two different buckets, I guess. Mm -hmm. Is there any scenario then that you could think of that would be cause for legitimate concern, perhaps from parents to say, hey, I want to make sure I know what's being taught in my kid's school, especially as it relates to sexuality and human reproduction and gender identity or any number of issues. Do you find those concerns legitimate around, again, those extreme cases that that some people are kind of worried about and thinking about, well, gosh, what if this happens and I don't receive notification as a parent? Is that a legitimate concern in your mind? It's not. Planned Parenthood helped to actually, we consulted on this, and that was really one of the concerns is that we want to make sure that we're protecting kids as well. That's our main goal. And so wanting to make sure that they have proper information in an age-appropriate way, in a way that's not stigmatizing or shaming. And so we absolutely want parent involvement, and we want parents to attend sessions because these conversations need to continue at home. Anything that's happening within the school, parents should be involved in, which is why we wanted to make sure that put in this specific language so that parents would be notified. And I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. And I'm convinced that the bill has sufficient parental consent requirements and that it'll be similar to the way it is now with respect to obtaining parental consent. But should parental consent even be required? In my view, if a mom maybe, say, opts, let's say, in my example, her son, out of this education, and he also lives in a house where he doesn't learn this curriculum at home, 
because maybe that family doesn't talk very much about uh, sex ed. And maybe he's the only education he has on this is he's learned through his church that LGBT, um, being LGBTQ is bad or is not normal. And so this then becomes this young person's only experience. So you've taken a young person, you've allowed them to be withdrawn from this education, which we don't do for any other part of education, right? We have truancy rules, we have to send our kids to school or or homeschool them. And so by opting out, you've taken a young person and allowed them to be denied this education. And then let's say he goes on a date with my daughter and he's never learned about consent or maybe he and and maybe he harms my daughter. Maybe he harms other women um, for lack of education or maybe she's impregnated or contracts an STD because he didn't learn about condom usage. Or maybe he grows up and is in a professional position where he has the opportunity to discriminate against someone who's LGBTQ because he has no other education about this issue. And in that way, he harms someone or multiple people. And and that's not even taking into consideration his potential self-harm if he realizes he's gay and joins the thousands of LGBTQ kids who commit suicide. Why is it okay to allow a child to be opted out when the result could mean him harming others? I mean, that's yeah, a, that's a, that's a, I mean, I think that that's a really wonderful point. Um, we don't ask and we don't involve parents in selecting math curriculum. So parents, you know, all schools in Colorado have a parent advisory board of some kind that go by different names. And those parent advisory boards are involved in various ways. But ultimately, it's the principal, um, maybe with input from the faculty, who's deciding we're going to teach math using this particular curriculum. And And there's no, you know, parent involvement and saying like, yes, I will opt my child into teaching and learning that math. Um, And I guess in some ways you do that by choosing what school they may go to. But but you're right. When it comes to sexual health education, we do not have standards that are in line with our other standards when it comes to education. Even in Colorado, we do not have a health graduation requirement. Um, We are one of the few, which is really surprising in a state where we value health. Um, We have a number of, we're like one of the healthiest states when you see those national polls. So it is confusing, but I think because it is such still such a polarizing issue. And I think that because there are different viewpoints and there are different faiths and there are folks who ascribe to certain religions who don't believe people who are gay, you know, that that's a good thing. And they have every right to believe that. And so I think that that is the the constant conundrum, if you will, that we face in society. You know, it's unfortunate because all around us is sex, right? So movies, books, magazines, commercials, anything, it's sex. It even has to do with, you know, when a baby is born, what is it? People are asking, is it a boy or is it a girl? We are always ascribing certain an identity to people. We are always ascribing um, and making assumptions based on people how, how people look, dress, or who they're attracted to, whether or not they have a ring on their finger, and then are they married to a man or a woman, if they are a man or a woman. So it infiltrates every single aspect of who we are as human beings. So it's this really interesting place of how do we have these types of conversations? How do we make sure that people are getting factual information at the right age when it's appropriate and and then helping to create safe spaces because nobody wants to hear about sexual assault. I think that that's one thing everybody can agree on regardless of what their political affiliation is. Yeah, and Shelly, I think your question is really interesting, and and I hadn't really thought about it that way either, this question about should we even allow parents to opt their kids out of sex ed and, and using some of the scenarios that you described. And as you were talking in my head, I'm like, oh my God, of course you want to give parents their rights, maintain parental rights. I don't find it analogous to compare a math curriculum to a sex ed curriculum for some of the reasons that you just mentioned, Allison, right? Around there's there's faith elements and, and personal beliefs and it's just it is. It's a it's a more gray area issue, I think. I think most people would agree than than saying, hey, my kid's gonna go learn math or my kid's gonna go learn language arts or whatever. So I I appreciate I think the concern that you're outlining and I, again I think it's an interesting question to think about. My position would be I would always be hesitant to take away the parental rights 
to opt their kid out of a curriculum that could be seen by some as perhaps contrary to the personal beliefs or the personal religious beliefs of that of that family. Allison, I know you testified on this bill on Capitol Hill. It sounded like a very intense debate where many opponents of this bill came forward and, uh, and spoke. Uh, many of those opponents uh, had strong religious beliefs that have led them to uh, conclude that being LGBTQ is not normal or bad or contrary to their interpretation of uh, the Christian faith and that they don't want their kids educated otherwise and I say their interpretation of the Christian faith because while I was raised Catholic, I personally don't understand how anyone who studies a loving and accepting, tolerant figure of Jesus Christ yet believes he would somehow condemn condemn gays has a reasonable interpretation. But that makes me want to get right down to a moral question here, which Caitlin and I sometimes do in this podcast. Isn't it wrong not to educate young people so that they understand that LGBTQT people exist, are normal, and are not bad. Isn't it discriminatory to do so? It's scientifically incorrect, and and like I say, it hurts others. My view is that whether this is based on religion or not, any view that ends up hurting other people, any position that hurts other people is wrong. People who don't want to educate their kids that being LGBTQ is normal and not bad, that leads to continued discrimination and and therefore hurting of others. So in my view, that's wrong. And I wonder if if the moral issue was an impetus behind the bill. Uh, You had, Allison, brought to our attention a deranged Herald article dated February 19, 2019, which is posted on redmombluemom.com, where the bill's sponsor is quoted as explaining, quote, for so long we have allowed religion to malign people who are different, and if we are not teaching our kids to be inclusive of people who are different than they are, that perpetuates that, end quote, meaning perpetuates the malignment of others, which is harmful to others. So that very aspect of the bill that was so offensive to the religious opponents that you faced at the Capitol, Allison, is one of the primary reasons for me why the bill is so important. It's morally wrong to perpetuate through failure to educate young people a false belief that LGBTQ people are not normal or are bad. You know, in the years that that we grew up, there was no LGBTQ education as part of sex ed. There was also no education on consent. And so I think a lot of people in our generation grew up thinking that it's wrong, it's bad. Um, and that has shaped some of the discrimination that LGBTQ people face in our communities still today. Yeah, I'm like tearing up hearing you talk because that is absolutely why I've been in this field for so long. It is to me also morally reprehensible that any person should be discriminated against. And I think that that therein lies the issue. I too am a recovering Catholic. And, you know, growing up Catholic, there were many things that I was taught that I do not uh, ascribe to today. And, and I think every person has to look at their religion and determine whether or not it helps them or hurts them. And for me, it it was not it was not serving me because I too look at Jesus as a compassionate person and and looking at his life I that would not hate is not something that comes to mind so yes that's why this is called out even though the bill in 2013 was passed there has still been instances of schools bringing in abstinence only until marriage curriculum um, which can sometimes be called sexual risk avoidance curriculum or go by other terms and while While on paper, I think we all can agree, like we want kids to wait to have sex. For sure. That's Planned Parenthood's stance. That's, I mean, I think everybody's, until someone's ready, they shouldn't be sexually active. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, I think on abstinence, we we all agree on this. And I liked that section of your book, Allison, called I Am Ready, which I think any teen who read it would serve to slow them down. You say, you're probably not ready if peer pressure is the reason you're doing this, or if you feel that you're the last version, or if you feel pressure from your partners, and that's the reason you're considering having sex. So I liked how your book addressed that. Abstinence is a great choice. I hope that it continues to be part of the education. And it's also not the only choice. So we know that kids aren't being abstinent, even though the average age of sexual activity is around 17 for both boys and girls. And so we have to give them the proper skills and re- 
resources to be able to make informed decisions um, so that they can make themselves safe, that they can have conversations that when they do engage in sexual activity, we want it to be pleasurable and we want it to be consensual. So for some people, that is marriage. Some people, marriage isn't an option. So when we talk about sex as a form of procreation, we talk about it just between a man and a woman. We talk about it just being limited to marriage. Then we are leaving out a very large segment of the population. I wanted to come back, Shelley, to what you said and Allison, you were just responding to around this idea of making sure that no one feels discriminated against. I agree with that. I am, I am actually not particularly religious. I was not raised Catholic, so I don't have that um, personal experience. I I do think that there are people that um, feel as though their faith guides them into that direction. That isn't a choice that I would want to make for myself, as I know you guys agree with. Um, I don't think any sort of discrimination or hate uh, towards others that are different sexuality or otherwise is the right thing to do so but I also don't want to denigrate those of course that have a strong faith and and believe what they do that's that's certainly their choice but I did want to come back and Allison I'd be interested to know this idea of trying to make sure that the legislation is cognizant and caring for those groups it seemed like at least in the 2013 bill there was some recognition of that I guess my point is I don't know that that's a new concept although perhaps it's been further developed in 2019 but certainly the 2013 bill talked about making sure that education was culturally sensitive and there's some language about making sure that it includes integration and knowledge about various groups, communities of color, immigrant communities, and then of course LGBT communities as well. And I think that that language carried over into 2019, um, which I think is good. I think that's of course the right thing to do. But I also think that where there's been some controversy in the 2019 bill has been specifically preventing, and Allison, correct me if I use the wrong words here, but this concept of specifically preventing any context that has kind of a religious a religious connotation which again I, I'm okay with I think that's probably the right thing to do from a church and state perspective anyway but then there's also some language around this concept of how do you talk about human sexuality and sex ed in this context of moral ethical or religious values and the language in the 2019 bill, which again, I think has caused some of the, the questioning from, from some on the right, talks about a few things. It says sex ed must not explicitly or implicitly teach or endorse religious ideology or sectarian tenets, fine. No shame-based or stigmatizing language, fine. I think that's a great thing. Cannot employ gender norms or stereotypes, I think that's fine. I'd love to hear a little bit more, Allison, of what you think that means in practice. But then the last one, which I'm just not quite sure what these words mean, to be honest with you, talks about that it can't exclude relational or sexual experiences of LGBT communities or people. So can you maybe talk, Allison, about those last two, the the gender norms and stereotypes, and then this language around relational or, or sexual experiences Because I think that last one in particular, as I'm sure you've seen, right, the outrage from some on the right, well, what does that mean? What are we teaching our fourth graders? Are we going into explicit graphic detail around the quote unquote sexual relations? Um, And I I don't know how to interpret that language. Can you talk about those two things a little bit? Sure. So so those abstinence only till marriage programs, a couple things that they call out. When you're talking about sex for procreation, it's definitely a penis to a vagina sex. That's kind of the end all be all. There is nothing else in this world. And I think we all as adults recognize that whether or not you engage in those other activities, whether they be oral or anal sex, they do exist. And some people actively choose to engage in them. Some people actively choose to engage in them because those are the body parts that they're given. So if there are two penises in a relationship, there's very limited things. There's no vagina for that penis to go into. So it's talking about that, yeah, that's penis to anus or penis to mouth. That's a thing. Like that's something that will happen. And, And we also know that a lot of young people experiment with oral sex first. They don't consider it sex. That is part of the reason why we are seeing an increase in STIs. 
Young people have to know that sex is sex. It has risks. It has to be pleasurable and consensual. So that means that everybody involved is on the same page of what it means, of what they want to do. Sexual activity should be this thing that you and your partner are talking about, that you have agreed upon, um, and you both know what you're getting into. That's going into relational piece of it, I think. Um, And then going into like the gender roles and norms, it isn't just a woman's responsibility to say no. It is everyone who is in this sexual relationship's responsibility to have that open and honest dialogue. If we can frame that for young people in that way, we are setting them up for a lifetime of success, not just to graduate from high school without getting an STI or without getting pregnant or getting someone pregnant. That's not the goal. We're trying to set our young people up who some of them will just graduate high school and that's it. They're done and they go on to work and they live their lives, if this is the only opportunity that they have to learn about what it means to have a consensual relationship, then they deserve to get that education. And I think also when we think about gender roles, a lot of the abstinence only till marriage programs, you can you can look up these types of programs, but equating a woman to who's had sex to a used piece of tape or a chewed piece of gum. And that, for so many levels, in my opinion, is so wrong and really reduces... You're referencing that because it happened in a classroom? Yeah, and there's documented cases of it. And it's not a one-time thing. Like, this is an organization that does this regularly. That's a part of their curriculum. And so we are then teaching young women that they are less than, that they do not have the same rights as their male counterparts. That's... That's not, I don't think any of us at this table would say that that's okay. I know one of the, the Denver Post articles cited on redmombluemom.com says that one of the myths that you dealt with on Capitol Hill was that people thought that the bill required that you teach about sexual positions. My understanding was that that came that idea came from an email from this religious group urging its members to oppose the bill, but there's nowhere actually in the bill where it talks about sexual positions. Similarly, Um, The idea that sex ed would now be taught to very young people became a a popular myth about this bill. But can I just ask on that age-appropriate concept, because uh, Allison, you just mentioned that as well, and I've seen similar kind of criticism or or concern about the bill, again, probably using very extreme language around, you know, we're going to be teaching fourth graders about the intricacies of sexual positions and so on and so forth. But I did want to ask about that age-appropriate. So that's a defined term in the bill, as it was in 2013, and I think the language is basically the same. The other interesting thing is that the bill for both 2019 and 2013 both talk about that this curriculum is not required for K through three or preschool through three. I can't remember which one it is for which bill. But I think that's where some of these concerns around, okay, fourth graders, right? What what are we going to be teaching fourth graders? So this idea of age appropriate, I think is a legitimate concern and certainly one that I have as a parent. And, and we will talk here in a minute about how to talk about sex with your kids. Because again, I think we all have boys that are similar ages. But talk to us, Allison, about your perspective on this whole idea of age appropriate because that honestly that's something I worry about right and and certainly hearing you talk about a little bit more context around some of the language in the bill is helpful but there's a little piece of me where I'm like gosh I still worry about what is the level of information the level of detail um, how explicit or graphically are we talking about these ideas and topics and subjects with younger kids, right? Elementary schoolers in particular. So can you talk to us about that? Sure. So let's be clear. When we're talking about oral, anal, and vaginal sex, that is absolutely with older kids. This is not That's not something we're going into a puberty conversation. You don't hit the ground running with that conversation with your kiddos. So, so I do want to state that. But there is a lot of research that's gone into brain development and what's appropriate for different levels. And so that's where you get the age appropriateness piece. And so those are actually, you can find those on the internet. If you go to SICUS, that's a really great website, um, which will outline what are some of the standards for sex education at various levels. And that's even a great guide for all of your listeners to go and check out, um, because it does talk about like, how do you start these conversations with a preschooler or a kindergartner? And there are things that you can talk about. While this bill doesn't go into that, um, there are conversations you can have that are absolutely age appropriate and and great ways to start the conversation. So, for example, making sure that you're teaching proper terminology for the body parts is really important for young people because that way that if somebody 
um, you know, God forbid, is hurting them in some way, they know how to advocate and say, hey, you know, someone touched me in my private area. That's my private area. That's my penis. That's my vagina. And it's and it's my body. And nobody gets to touch me there. So there is a big body safety component for young people for for the little littles. Another thing is like teaching consent. So you don't have to talk about consent and the concept of sex with you're talking about sharing toys. And do you want to share a toy? And no, that makes me sad or angry or whatever. And how to, you know, and sometimes if somebody doesn't want to share a toy with you, that's okay. Or going over to a neighbor's house or an aunt's house or whomever. And and they're like, Oh, give me a hug. And the kids, you know, a lot of times some kids are like, Yeah, totally. And other kids are like, I don't want to. And so looking at kids and saying, you know, it's your choice to touch another person with your body. Like that is, those are some of the early on messages. And then you just build from there. Um, so those, those are foundational skills. So no, this doesn't address and you know, this doesn't talk about going into detail. Even with high schoolers, it is very medical and very factual. And that's important because it's not about trying to persuade a person one way or another to do one thing or another sexually. It's really about giving information. Yeah, and I think I appreciate what you're saying. And I, I, I know that even in the text of the bill, again, I think both the 2019 proposed bill as well as the older bill, as we talked about earlier, this idea of having parents be part of the process, having these school accountability or kind of community oriented groups help to really come together to figure out what the right type of content is for this sex ed curriculum for the right levels um, certainly gives me some relief. I will say on the Planned Parenthood side, and you just you just mentioned this, but they, there's a section, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Allison, where it says, you know, what should I teach my preschooler about sex and sexuality? And that feels very, I don't know, I mean, it feels very progressive and alternative. And, and what you just said, I agree with. And the things that you talked about, like introducing the concept of consent, not in a sexual way, talking about, you know, making sure littles know how to use the right body parts. 100% agree with you there. But you know, when you just see the headline, mm-hmm. you know, how to talk to your preschooler about sex, there's going to be a lot of reaction, I think, from from someone like me, right? Where, where you're kind of like, Oh, my gosh, what what does that mean? That's, yeah. that's not the that's not the direction we should be going. And I think that's where some of this controversy is coming from. Sitting here today, I think there's a lot of things we, of course, agree on. Again, maybe not some of the specific nuts and bolts, but conceptually, there's a lot here. And Caitlin, just to be clear, you wouldn't oppose the concept of consent being taught to the older kids. No, I think that's very important. And I think, as Allison said at the beginning, I think we're in a new age right now with Me Too and some of these other um, stories and, and revelations that have come out in the news. I think adding the consent piece is, is very important. That's one of the pieces of the bill I really like. I really like the consent piece. I really like the piece around um, making sure that it's called out, that language cannot be shaming or stigmatizing. I think that's very important. As I said before, I like the fact that this is kind of uh, legally preventing an abstinence-only approach, because I don't, I don't think that that's the right thing to do. So there's a lot about this bill that I like, but there's some of these elements with the language that I think have been what have been causing some concern and question on the part of uh, many on the right. So Allison, another question that came up for me personally as I was trying to research and do some preparation for our conversation this evening is trying to understand the relationship between the legislation that's being proposed, um, the sex ed legislation, the Colorado State Board of Education, and then our local school districts. And I was under the impression, I think incorrectly, frankly, that what happens is the legislature passes the sex ed curriculum bill, it goes to the Colorado Board of Education, they create the specifics around the curriculum, whatever those might be, they define things like consent, they talk about uh, you know, sexual relationships or, uh, you know, all these different things that we've talked about today. And then that Colorado State Board of Education pushes that curriculum basically out to the districts in the state, and then the districts have to kind of implement or enforce, so to speak. I, I don't know that that's correct. And I know that you're obviously very well versed in that. Can you tell us a little bit about how that relationship works? Because I understand that Colorado is a, is a local control 
state, but I'm not sure what that means in practice. Sure. So um, you're right. Colorado is a local control state. And so what that means is the state board of education, which is an elected body, determines state standards for curriculum. Basically, they do that in all the subject matter that school public schools teach. And that means that by the graduation of fifth grade, students need to know X, Y, and Z in math or literacy or health. Um, and when we're talking about health, health is included it includes sex education. Um, so the same is for eighth grade and then the same for 12th grade. Um, so those standards are concepts. And so just like when we think about, again, going back to math, algebra, and how do we understand what algebra is and what are the components of that? Similarly, that will be that's outlined in the state standards for sex education. So it'll talk about contraception and then it'll say, okay, so you need to talk about condom use, we need to talk about hormonal contraception, we need to talk about abstinence, etc., etc., down the line. So this is not a curriculum that the state legislation is demanding or mandating. Um, however, it's it is is a clarification and an enforcement of the standards. So those the bill gets passed, the standards have been in effect for since 2009, um, so even before the 2013 legislation, and those standards then, it's up to each school district to come up with a policy and to say like, Yes, we agree with that. So, for example, my children are in DPS school district, the Denver Public School System, and there is a very clear health agenda for Denver Public School kids that talks about they need to learn about mental health and self-care. They need to learn about nutrition um, and, you know, kind of spells it out. And then, so those policies are set forth by the district. The district says, yes, we will put money towards this. We will train teachers, etc., and now schools, you figure out how to get it done. So here's a list of all the curriculum that meet these requirements. And now as a principal, you get to decide. And so that's why it's the bill is written in that way or with regard to parental involvement, because then it goes down to the principal who is also informed by their community, the group of parents and other community members who help to then shape the curriculum of that school. Okay, great. That that's helpful because I definitely didn't understand that relationship, and and certainly in my mo- my own mind, I was I was confused about what was being determined by that Colorado board versus my local district and how much control the local district and local schools have to kind of interpret or um, deliver that curriculum meeting the guidelines to their own student body uh, based on input from their from their parents and their community. So that really helps. Thank you. Okay, so Allison, let's transition to talking about your book. As I mentioned in the intro, you are an accomplished author, which is incredible. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, And your book is called Making Sense of It, A Guide to Sex for Teens and Their Parents Too, as I mentioned at the beginning. And we've linked uh, the Amazon link on our website if, if our listeners want to buy a copy. So a lot of things that I liked about your book, Allison, I thought it was a great read. One of the things I liked the most was that you provide conversation starters for parents and and kids, teens as well, to try and start these conversations, which can be a little awkward, a little, you know, nerve wracking uh, on both sides, probably. But even with those conversation starters that you provide, I personally am still struggling with how to have that first conversation with my sixth grader. Um, I'm struggling with what is the right way to approach it. And the other thing I'm struggling with is how much information to share. And obviously every kid is different and it's up to the parents to understand that. But as you think about all of your years of experience doing sexual education and working with young people, what is kind of your tried and true, like, number one tip for starting that conversation and knowing as a parent how deep to go into the content? That's a great question. And I think that it's one that everyone has for sure. So I say they're going to happen. These conversations are not going to happen when you expect them. They're not going to happen when you have a script or anything 
pre-planned out. In fact, that's probably when you are going to have like those awkward stilted conversations where you're like, I don't know if I did that okay or not. So I think what you look for is those teachable opportunities. So even watching movies with your kids, there are times even in, you know, G movies where you'll see couples kissing or flirtation happening. And that is an opportunity to talk to your kids. And you don't have to do it like right then and there, although some people do. But it's this opportunity to be like, hey, you know, those those two people really seem to like each other. What do you think that means? Or sometimes they'll come home and they'll say, so-and-so has a boyfriend or so-and-so has a girlfriend. What does that mean? So it's actually not you talking at them. It's a lot of you listening to them and hearing where they are, because that's going to give you your first clue of how much information do they have. So if they're like, oh, it just means that they like sit together at lunch and they're friends. You're like, okay, great. They're still in the friend zone. We don't need to, you know, think about that. But then if they're coming home, well, they like to hold hands and that's strange. Or, um, you know, some, somebody tried to kiss someone on the playground and, and I, I, I thought that was kind of weird or I kind of want to be kissed or whatever it might be to ask, then just ask more questions about like, well, why? Why do you think, why do you think people kiss each other? And I think that those naturally start those conversations. And when you don't know the answer to something, say you don't know. Um, so, you know, let's look that up together. Um, let's try to, let's try to find the answer together. So those are the kind of things that I think about and, and advise on, you know, my kids first asked me, where do babies come from when we were driving on a way to go see a movie? And I just remember, you know, gulping and being like, wow, that's a really great question. So honoring the question, thank you for asking me that. Oh, I feel so, you know, I love that we can talk about this kind of stuff, those types of things. And then you don't have to go into a lot of detail. So, you know, when the super young kids, well, you know, you know how chickens lay eggs? Well, women have eggs inside their body. And then when they get fertilized by sperm, that will make a baby. And kids are usually like, okay, great. And can I have a glass of milk? Um, so I think just taking it very bite size and and not letting kind of that what I call word vomit come out. So really just making sure you keep it short, brief, and then does that make sense? Or do you have questions, further questions about that? And they're like, so they might be like, no, I have no more questions about that. Or they might say, well, how does the sperm get there? And then that's going to take you into another step of the conversation. So I think that that that's those are the biggest pieces of advice. And as long as you're willing to continue that conversation, even if you don't know the answers, you're going to be seen as that trusted person to keep coming back to. So as those questions, conversations evolve um, and they see maybe two men kissing. Well, why? why, I don't understand. Why why are those two men kissing? That's an opportunity to talk about LGBTQ issues. And it doesn't have to be this long, drawn-out explanation that's encompassing every single thing that you want to say in that second, but it's just, you know, that bite-sized 30-second elevator spit speech because we know that their attention span is very short and and then that'll help to open the door for further conversations. I would also say my advice is not to make any sort of assumptions about kids. So when they do ask you something, so maybe they um, heard something on the playground, a term like blowjob is especially common around middle school kids to start talking about it. Not everybody knows what that is. Um, so they may come home and be like, what's a blowjob and have no idea. They could think it's like a fruit drink for all they know, right? As a parent to really think about like, how are you going to react to that type of a question? Am I going to freak out and say, don't ever say that word. We're never talking about that again. Go to your room. Or we're going to say, huh, where do, what do you think it means? You know, and like putting it back on them because they'll tell you, I think it's a fruit drink. And then as a parent, you can decide, Yep, that's where we are developmentally. Let's leave <laughs> right. it there. Or actually, you know, you're getting older. So that's actually a slang term. And let's define it and talk about it. And why would some and then that goes into a further conversation of why would somebody do that and all of those things. How about uh, with teenagers, the issue of masturbation? I know your book talks about teaching kids something about that so that they don't think that it's bad or wrong. Yeah. And I don't know if it's part of 
uh, sex ed at school or not, but uh, how do you think that should be addressed? Um, So masturbation is not typically a part of sex education, but growing up Catholic, masturbation was bad. It was very, very bad. And I think then inherently you start to think badly about your own body and who you are as as a human being for experiencing pleasure. And so, as I've said, I sex, in my opinion, should always be pleasurable and consensual. And if you are not mature enough to have a conversation with a partner about what feels good and what you want and don't want to do sexually, you shouldn't be having sex. And that's really important for, I I think, for young people to hear that. But if they want to figure out what does feel good and how do I know that without having sex, why not talk about masturbation as a very safe, normal activity? It's important, I think, to just normalize the body, recognize that there are human responses, and and, and also to recognize that that is a way to be safe. You're not going to get pregnant. You're not going to get an STI. You There's not a complication with a r- romantic partner. Uh, so I am a very strong proponent of of masturbation. Yeah, and Allison, like I said, I, there's so much in your book that I think is is so good. I really encourage our listeners to get it and to read it and to use it as a guide and and make it appropriate for their child where their child is, right? Age age wise or comprehension wise or what have you. One of the other pieces that I just wanted to highlight that I really liked about your book was um, your section around consent and communication and not only talking about you know what consent means, but then also actually giving what I thought some very practical tips and language suggestions for kids or teens on how to talk about it with a with a partner, um, not only if they want to engage in sexual activity, but also what to say if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, you also talked about, you know, what's some language you can use if you want to end a relationship, right? And we know those teenage relationships are full of drama, but I thought that was really, really a good piece of your book as well. I, I really thought you did a nice job on that, and that's very helpful for parents. Thank you. Here's a tough one. Um, your book talked a little bit about porn, but not in a negative way. And I thought, can't porn be a very negative thing in, in, in many different respects. It can't. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely documented cases of, of addiction um, and there's some porn that is, you know, absolutely offensive and um, belittling to people. I don't talk about it in a negative way. Um, one of the, I don't want to encourage folks to, um, and especially teens, to start looking at porn. Um, I think that someone who looks at porn or watches porn or should go should go into it with an educated mind. And I'm not sure teenagers are necessarily ready for that type of imagery. And the reason for that is um, because it's very fantasy and it sets some unrealistic expectations. I think it's important for people to know what it is. And then I think that that's something that really, you know, that's a value that parents need to talk with their kids about. I think that the important thing for young kids to know is that when you're Googling something, porn can pop up. And so that's the, that's why it's really important to know what it is and to know, and for parents to be able to talk about it and to be able to help young people recognize it for what it is and say like, oh yeah, this is just like any movie, this is not real. This is not the expectation when it comes to sexual activity. As we get close to wrapping up, um, I want to point out our, our in our argument about the new Colorado law on sex ed, I think that um, we all agree that sex ed in schools is important. We agree it reduces teen pregnancies and, and STDs. Um, and we all agree that consent should be part of the curriculum. Uh, Caitlin and I maybe disagree a little bit on uh, deferring to religion on LGBTQ issues, and maybe we disagree on the parental consent uh, requirement. We're so thankful today to have Allison Macklin, who is an expert in the area of sex ed. Thank you for joining us today, Allison, and providing a lot of valuable information. Uh, Both Caitlin and I highly recommend Allison's book. As a mom, guarantee you that you will learn things from this book that you did not already know and you will um, learn things that you need in in order to teach your kids. And it can even be read by teens. Um, If you think that you're a a hip mom and you don't need this book to discuss sex ed with your kids, trust me, this is a very useful resource to check out before talking to your kids about sex. Um, So check it out, Making Sense of It by Allison Macklin. And the first email that we get 
uh, at redmombluemompodcast at gmail.com. Commenting on today's episode, I'll send you a free copy of Allison's book. Thanks again, Allison. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.